and welcome to Decoding Duchenne with me, Claire Ronakers, brought to you by the charity Duchenne UK. Childhood should be a landscape of promise and adventure, of ambition and expectation, but a diagnosis of Duchenne can shatter those expectations. Today, we're talking about taking control at the point of diagnosis, passing on advice from parents to parents on the first days on the path of living with Duchenne. I'm joined by two mothers of children with Duchenne, Lisa Kuwald, who's recently joined Duchenne UK in the role of patient advocacy. Hello. And Alex Johnson, who's a co-founder of the charity. Hello. Lisa, let's start with you. When was the first time you heard of Duchenne muscular dystrophy? Um, it was at the point, um, literally the week before diagnosis, um, my son Felix, um, who is now seven, he was diagnosed when he was two in 2013 and I'd not heard of the word Duchenne at all until that point. Why, why did you go to the doctor in the first place? Um, Felix, it wasn't anything physical that we were worried about, although we didn't walk till he was 16 months, but at that point I didn't feel that was a major issue. But he did have a lot of problems um, being sick, so I took him to the paediatrician to find out what was happening there, and they did blood tests. And what came back from those? And the blood tests came back that he had high CK levels. Which um, is an indicator. Which is an indicator. And still at that point, they weren't open what blood tests they were actually doing. And the reason I knew they were testing for Duchenne was when we were literally in the, in the room taking his bloods and I saw it on the lab form. But it didn't mean it anything was, to you, presumably, at that point? Well, I, and it, it said muscle disorder to me, but I didn't know there was definitely testing for it. So, and I think I've heard this a lot from other families, is that at that point, you know, often they don't know what they're testing for or they're not open with them. And I suppose because it's such a devastating diagnosis that the clinicians find it quite difficult to... They don't want to open that up at a point when and it might not be. not be sure. Yeah. yeah. So I remember the, um, taking Felix's blood that day and seeing it on the form they were testing for... Um, Duchenne. Um, and at that point they don't tell you it's necessarily Duchenne, they say it could be Duchenne or Becker. But they just know it's a high CK and they're looking further into it. Um, so that was at the first point. And I, I, I think before that they'd said it was a muscle disorder. And I remember my husband ringing me and just saying, it, it's not good, it's really not good. So that's when I started to read up on Duchenne. Um, back then and try from that point to learn a little bit more about it. And when the doctor confirmed to you that that's what it was, what was that, what was that like? Um, I think it's just, it's, it's just a complete numbness. It's just complete shock. Because I remember going into the appointment thinking, and in my head just going, because I knew it was something. Becca, 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 Becca. You know when you're sort of trying to will something. Um, and I'd, we didn't, we, we, there was in the appointment, myself and my husband and Felix, and we came out and we didn't speak for three hours, not one of us to each other. And we, we were in the car and we drove and drove and drove and didn't speak a word. Because it, it, it's just a complete shock. You are, it, you know when you hear people and they're in shock and they can't speak, and it was just like that. And it did take us then even a few weeks to tell family, because mm. we were processing it ourselves mm. first. And complicated when it's a rare disease to discuss with your family because, yeah, because you nobody to, knows what it is. Yeah, yeah, you have to sort of explain it all and or you know say look it up or whatever yeah. because I don't think they can 
you know, understand it as well at that point. Yeah, and um, does that sound familiar to you, Alex, from your situation? Yeah, I mean, we had had concerns for Jack about over a period of ye a year that something wasn't quite right, but we didn't ourselves even know what it was, and I, I remember... Was it a, a physical manifestation? It was a physical... I remember sitting in a play centre um, with, with Jack and Melise, and I remember them, them scrambling up um, up like a, a foam staircase thing, and Neve just effortlessly got to the top, and Jack was pulling, and it was so laboured. I just remember sitting there thinking, come on, Jack, you, come on, lad, you can do this, you can get to the top. And I think it just started triggering in my mind something just isn't quite right here and that's when um, I took him to the GP for the first time. Um, but the GP actually said that there was, there was nothing wrong um, and, and sent me away. He actually said to me, just because your husband's sporty doesn't mean your child's going to be. Gosh. Um, to which I came home and cried my eyes out to my mum. Um, saying I just think something's not right and my mum actually phoned the health visitor and said look will you come out you see lots of children every single day and just tell her that you know everything is fine and she came out and she said actually I think he's got flat feet we'll send him to see a physio and um, we'll have him fitted for some insoles in his shoes and actually it's not uncommon that physios pick it up is it yeah and the physio she started assessing him and uh, she just said, can um, can you take his trousers off? And she said, Jack, will, will you just get onto the floor for me and then stand up? And she looked at me and she said, um, is, is that the way he always gets up? And now I know that's called the Gowers Manoeuvre. So he puts his hands onto his legs and he walks up himself to get himself upright. Because his legs aren't strong enough to yeah. do it. And um, what should have been a 10 minute appointment, we were in there for an hour and she was quizzing me about all sorts of things, my family history. Do, did I have anybody in my family who had any form of muscle weakness? And I remember at the time I was um, seven months pregnant um, with a, another boy, James, and I remember asking, do you, um, do, you, do you know what you're having? And I said, a boy and a face just dropped. Because ultimately I think she knew that's what it, that it was going to be diagnosed with Duchenne. But at that point, she couldn't say because she needed to refer us to it. And a that because it was a genetic illness, there was a, a, a chance of your yeah. other child having it too. Yeah. So did she mention Duchenne at that point? No, she didn't. She was more was broader than that, and then referred you on, or, or she, asked I you to get referred. I left the appointment thinking he, there's something wrong here. You don't get for flat feet. You don't get referred to see a paediatrician. And she said, I'm going to get you an appointment within the next few days. And knowing sadly how the NHS works, you don't get an appointment within a couple of days for flat feet and I went home and I said to my husband there's, there's something wrong here and he was like well it's you you've been you know all dramatic and there's nothing wrong and you know he was very much head in the sand and I yeah went away because one of the things she commented on in that appointment was he had large calves mm -hmm. and I went home and I googled large calves in children and Shen came up yeah, yeah. and were you referred on to, uh, you went from your GP presumably on to a neuromuscular centre? No, or? not straight away. So the physio sent us to see a paediatrician. Right. Um, and it was the paediatrician who ran the blood test and found the high CK value that led to the diagnosis of Duchenne. Once you had this very difficult situation to take on board and a lot of information that you may never have heard of, you know, where the body works and things like that, was there a moment when you went from 
despair to hope or did you feel paralysed by the situation that you were in? I think at first we, me and my husband, I think we both went into some kind of shock. I, I think we were in post-traumatic shock, you know. Mm. For a good period of time, I think our situation was a little bit more complicated because I was seven months pregnant with another boy. We didn't know whether and, I... And in that, in that situation, do they wait for the child to be born before they test? Yeah. yeah. So did. you had this long period why you didn't know yeah. about so your second child. They did have to say to me, look, we don't know whether you're going to be a carrier or not, but there is a, a risk of you, your unborn son also having the condition which... You know, the thought of having two children with Duchenne is, is, a, is a scary prospect and I think we, as a family, you know, we hit rock bottom but I think I, I was very blessed in that early time that I had an amazing family around me who, you know, stepped in and, you know... Supported you? Yeah, supported us. My mum, she's a proper northern woman and great and she dragged me out of bed every day and made me do. Yeah, because <laughs> you made me function because she just believed you're going to have to get up and you're going to have to give this kid the best life you can. And I spoke at the beginning about the hope and expectation for a child and there you were, had another child in you with all those hope yeah. and expectations and suddenly they turned to fear. Yeah. Very difficult mm -hmm. situation. When a family goes through what they've, what you've been through, what you've both been through, um, you know, what, do, what do they need to know? Where do you start that process of pulling yourself out of shock and despair and lifting your head up and looking around you? What's the first thing you, you would recommend they do? Um, I suppose it's support from other people and also I, I do believe that um, knowledge helps you, you know, as well and learning a little bit more and realising that it's not all the despair that you hear of you know, that you feel right at the beginning and that there are lots of um, ways you can help. There's also lots of new treatments coming through and lots of research and I think that gives me hope and I, and I think if you learn that from the beginning then, you know, the hope, you can get the hope there straight, you know, straight, you can be straight away. Up by it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you, you know, you can feel positive because, you know, um, I think when the, the boys are first diagnose especially when they're very young you sort of they're, they're still you know yeah. they're still the same little boy they're, they're still, still kicking a football around they're, they're at that age yeah, yeah yeah you know and they've still got all their hopes and dreams and you know and they they always should have because mm. you know they can achieve so much but i do think um educating yourself as much as you can um about the disease and connecting with other families and hearing their stories and um that the positive things that they've all gone through is is mm. really helpful important and when you're at a specialist um, often the first thing that they uh, talk to you about is the use of steroids and um, by steroids I'm talking about corticosteroids not anabolic steroids um, can you tell me Alex a little bit about about that yeah so one of the the treatments we do have for Duchenne is, is steroids and they're given to children to try and prolong ambulation and also keep upper limb strength and um, respiratory um, health. And when you went to the doctor and they talked about it, what sort of information were they able to give you about the steroids? So there's a lot, they, they understand why the boys need to take steroids, but there are a lot of side effects that come with steroids. So I think one of the early discussions we had with the doctor was when to start them. Mm -hmm. And we kind of wait for the boys. You try and, and give them the steroids before they start to decline. 
Um, so typically boys start steroids around the age of four, so they look for that, that moment to, to make the intervention. Did Felix start at about four on steroids? Yes. Was that a hard yeah. decision for you to make? Yes, it was, um, because you do worry about um, the side effects, but also, you know, the benefits that they give. Um, I, I felt that out, outweighed the, the side effects. I think the other reason that a lot of people do start steroids as well is if they're looking at, at trials, a lot of trials, later on you have to have been on a stable dose of steroids. I do think sometimes that um, starts people off on the steroids. Mm. But there's lots of different doses and you don't know, you know, I think... And what sort of advice did you get on that? Um, I think initially when we went to the consultant, we were sort of just told, you know, it, it's up to you. As, yeah. as blanket as that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, when you go to the consultant, um, they do say to you, it's your opinion, you know, what, what do you want to do? There's no conclusive evidence. There's these different options. Mm. And really, at that point, you sort of make that decision, the ultimate decision. You know, they can guide you slightly, but they make your ultimate decision yourself. Mm. That um, must have felt quite bewildering and frightening. Yes, it is bewildering. And I think at that point, you just have to, you know, read up on it. And, I was going to say, where to do you get parents. information and advice about that? Somewhere like Duchenne UK, presumably. Yes, yeah, and speaking to other parents who've, who've had the boys on different steps. Yeah. Um, there are two types of steroids? Yep, so there's um, prednisolone and deflazacort and the, there is, you know, different families choose different um, steroids based on their own circumstances. Um, prednisolone is widely available um, and it's, uh, it's cheaper than deflazacort but um, some parents do choose deflazacort because there are slightly fewer side effects associated with weight gain. So sometimes people choose deflazacort over prednisolone. But um, I think it's really important that people discuss with the doctors which one to use and, and why to use it and look at their own family's personal situation. So often steroids is one of the first in interventions as such, but there are some uh, basic measures that, that you can put, can put in place quite quickly after a diagnosis. Um, for instance, physio. Yeah, there are... Um, I think in that initial period you're in a little bit of a whirlwind and you're thinking what do I do, what do I need, yeah. you know, everything is, is kind of a blur but I, I mean before steroids you sort of need to have um, a check on your vitamin D levels, you need to have a, a baseline DEXA scan which looks at your bone health because mm -hmm. one of the side effects of steroids is it will thin the, the bones and you know, potentially cause osteoporosis. Um, you need to be vaccinated against chickenpox. Um, you need your height and your weight and your blood pressure done to sort so they can establish how the, the steroids are affecting that because boys generally have stunted growth through taking steroids and gain weight. So then if the boys are gaining weight, you need to make sure that that's appropriately managed. Mm -hmm. Um, have your eyes checked because you can develop cataracts. So there's lots of checks that you need to make sure that you have because you're taking steroids. But I think, you know, my personal feelings are with Jack, the steroids have benefited him. He's very, very small, but definitely his gross motor skills have improved through, through taking them. And things like um, splints and stretching, was that something you brought into your routine quite, quite early on? Yes. Um, so I think Felix probably had splints from about three. 
Um, and which how, was how did he take those? Before. So that's, that's at he, night, is it night Yes, splints? just at night. I've been very lucky with him with the splints because he, I, th I don't know if it's because he started them quite young, but he does wear them on the whole, he wears them most, most nights. And this is to stretch out the muscles, is yes, it? Yes, it's to stretch out the, um, the heel cord mm -hmm. um, and keep them in a, in a nice position when they're asleep. And did you introduce a stretching routine early on? Yes, um, so we also have a community physiotherapist who we are in contact with and she comes to the house and also to the school, now, now he's in school. But um, initially they would just start off with a basic stretching routine and as he's gone, as he's gone older, that's, that's changed over time. Um, and now at school, um, he also has physio every day with his one-to-one um, -one teaching assistant. So, so you do it, and you're someone at school, and you might have some help from a physio as well. Yes, the physio helps school and myself, and which Work are the, the best, program and which are the best, which is the best program. Yeah. So there's a lot of doctors' appointments and various different um, areas of medicine that are involved in helping to keep your child healthy. Is it a struggle to manage all of that? How, how do you mean, I mean, there are hundreds of appointments? Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it is, you know, it, there are lots of appointments and um, it's just a matter of having your calendar and making sure, you know, things like your Dexter or your um, cardiac appointments that might only be every couple of years, especially in the early days, that you monitor that and you, you, know, you keep an eye on um, when, they, when they should be coming up. For example, um, you know, Felix was only having a cardiac appointment every two years. But at that point, when you've just had that appointment, you can't rebook it for two years because the calendar isn't open. So hopefully they'll send you that appointment through, but it's just keeping, keeping on top it, it on top. And I do have a folder with all these appointments in and, and just try and keep on top of it a little bit. I think it's really important for families to know what you kind of, who you should be being seen by, who is your multidisciplinary team, mm -hmm. you know, that you do see a neuromuscular consultant, you know, you do have a neuromuscular physio involved in your son's care, you know, that there is, you know, a cardiologist involved, there's a nutritionist involved, and there's, a, there's an endocrinologist involved as well, and that everybody is coordinating and managing your son's care, and that everybody is speaking to everybody, because I think things do slip and sometimes with delays appointments get pushed back you know you should be seen by a neuromuscular consultant every six months sometimes it can slip to nine months ten months and you, you do need to not be scared to pick up the phone and say my son hasn't been seen for you know six months we need an appointment there's a lot of um, care and attention paid to your child who obviously needs that but um, you're both mothers to other children how have you found it personally coping with that kind of change to your life? So I think, um, in t so James, <laughs> James has never known life without Duchenne because mm. he was born into to all a of the chaos, family with it. Yeah, yeah, to a family with it. So um, I, I do actually wonder about the first year of, of James's life and that he did have, you know, two ultimately very, you know, depressed parents. But I think, you know, things have changed now and actually 
I'm just, I'm just thinking of us at the park at the weekend. Jack rides a mobility scooter and James is like sat on the front of the scooter yelling at him to go faster. And they also have this game, it's hilarious. Jack can't ride a bike. So Jack sits on the back of the bike and James stands up and he pedals for both of them. And like they whiz round. So I think they just sometimes do learn yeah. how to deal with things. And, and, uh, but you guys, you personally, how have you managed this incredibly difficult thing in your life where where have you found the support to keep going um i think it comes from support around you from family and friends and knowing that there's already there's always somebody there to talk to or you know even if it is just something as simple as can you know can you help pick up one of the boys from school or um you know take them in the morning because you, you you've got appointments to to deal with um that is, is a massive help and a massive support and, and just talking it through whenever. And the, um, and the Duchenne problems. community, do you feel that there are people there? Yeah, yeah, that's a, it, it's, it's a massive Duchenne community and the support there is, is quite unbelievable really. You know, I do have friends who have children with other, um, unfortunately, other conditions that, you know, and I, one thing I always, it comes back to me and it makes me realise when I speak to them is, you know, within the Duchenne community there are so many wonderful people who are always there to help and always there to support you. I think at the Shen UK we have an amazing patient advisory board so mm -hmm. if any families ever do want to put in touch with other families we, we have the capacity to do that but I think for us personally initially it was our genetic counsellor because we had to um, go through um, having James tested she was incredibly supportive of our family and helped us in those initial stages but then we did access psychological support further on down the line and I think our local hospice Darien House has been very good at supporting us as a family but also Jack through um, play therapy and they, James hasn't accessed the sibling therapy but they also have a programme there so where you can draw support. You would recommend looking more widely than the NHS then? Yeah, I would recommend looking at the local hospice. Um, there is support within the NHS, but I also want to say, sometimes I remember the first psychologist we went to see, it just wasn't the right fit. It wasn't the right person to help guide us through this. So sometimes you can reach out, you can access support, and it might not be right, but don't be scared to feel like you've got to try again. It might take a few attempts trying different people till you find the right person to work with you and your family. So in the same way that you might not, uh, you might choose to change doctors or to yep. change centres because you feel that you might get better help elsewhere, you should feel the same about psychological support. Yeah, I think so. I think so. If you could say anything, I'm going to ask you both this, anything to the person that you were those years ago when you sat in that cold, dark office, in that lonely moment when they told you the news, what, what would you say? Don't don't worry. Don't don't worry as much. You know, of course it's a worrying thing. Um, you know, and you will have days where, you know, you'll go back down into the, the days of despair that you, you had at the beginning, but re reframe I, I think, you know, I do look at life in a completely different way. Um and I think just hold on to that hope and, and keep keep going you know every, every day is a new day every, every day is another day to spend you know to spend with the children and there are so many things coming on the horizon and the research 
and the work that all the charities are you know are doing that don't despair you know as much as you can there just believe believe in in, in hope I think I would say to myself, don't let grief consume you, because yeah. I think it did for the first year. I think I would say to people, it's perfectly normal for it to put pressure on your relationship, on your marriage. You can mm. both deal with it in completely different ways. And I think sometimes you've just got to learn to tolerate that you're both going through this, you both can be dealing with it in different ways. And eventually you will come out of this. And you know, I'm blessed, I've got an amazing little boy who loves life and he does wonderful things. And I think one thing I would always tell people is have things to look forward to, plan, plan things, you know. Jack, every year we say, what do you want to do this year? And we, you know, my husband works incredibly hard to make sure that he can do what he what he's picked on his list. <laughs> Though he does want to do an ant and deck uh, bush tucker trial, which I'm not really looking forward to facilitating. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to eat bugs. <laughs> That's what Bless he's come him. up with. <laughs> but it's all about you know believing yeah, in your is. child and knowing that he still has a future. You he know, does. even with this thing. He does, and he's a remarkable little boy, and he is achieving things. You know, he's learnt how to sail. He's just won um, a coding championship, um, and he, yeah, wish he would spend a bit less time on his Xbox. But um, yeah, I think that's no difference. Yeah, it's good boys. to say you're, you're not alone as a mother. So yeah. <laughs> well, um, thank you both for sharing your stories today. Uh, when a family member's diagnosed with a rare disease, it can be a very frightening and isolating time. Um, but Duchesne UK is spearheading a community of passionate and supportive parents committed to working together to change the future of those who live with Duchesne muscular dystrophy. Find out more on the website at www.duchenneuk.org. Thank you for listening to Decoding Duchesne. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and recommend us to your friends and join us next time.